Genesis 3.20 to the end of the chapter to verse 24. And as usual, I know you're going to find it helpful to have a copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me. And you'll find that on page 3 if you're using the church Bible. And before we do look at God's Word and hear it preached, let's again pray. And I'd ask you to pray with me that God would bless the reading and preaching of His Word. Father in heaven, again, we turn our hearts to you and we lift up our voices to you and we acknowledge the great need of our souls for you to do a work of grace in us this morning and that you who are the God who has begun a good work in us, that you would bring it to completion till the day of Christ Jesus and that you would establish us in Christ and that you would give us a deeper understanding of who we are and of who you are and of what has happened in the fall and of what we need in the realm of redemption. We pray, our God, that you would enable us to hear the voice of the Son of God and to understand in more depth what he has accomplished for us. Our Father, we pray that you would remove from us every distraction and every wandering thought and that you would make us to only see and hear the Son of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 20, and God has just pronounced the curses on the serpent, on the woman, and now on the man in the order in which they rebelled. And now we read in verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil now, lest he Reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass withers The flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the, and perhaps the earliest childhood memory I have is uh, my mother taking me as probably a three or four-year-old to a store in which we were going to get a toy that she was going to get for having saved up these coupons for me. And on the way, my mom telling me not to touch the coupons and telling me to to sit in the cart in which we were going through the store. And at some point, I decided it was a good idea for me to reach out and take those coupons and to rip them. I don't know what I was thinking. It was one of those moments, as I look back, I've yet to recover from that. I'm like, what in the world are you doing? And my mom said to me, you're not getting the toy. And I remember the devastation mixed with the sinful complaint and bitterness and everything else that I felt as we passed that aisle where we were supposed to go down and get the toy that she had saved up to give me and had said that I was going to get because I had disobeyed her. And I tell you that story because in, in some sense, what we read in Genesis 3, 20 through 24 is the story of God having promised to Adam and Eve that if they would obey, if they would obey and fulfill the demands that he had placed on them, if Adam, as the representative of all of us, had obeyed with regard to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he and all of his descendants, that's us, and every man and woman on the face of the earth, descending by ordinary generation from Adam and Eve, would have been given a right to eat from the tree of life. 
and they would have lived forever. They would have had eternal life and they would have then turned the garden in Eden into the world and they would, have, they would have taken the garden out and expanded it and we would have lived in holiness and everything that we were meant to be, we would have been and we would have enjoyed all the blessings of God and we would have enjoyed the promise of eternal life and we would have been secured and safe in holiness and righteousness. But we know what happens. We know that Adam disobeys. Adam and Eve, as I noted to you before, C.S. Lewis says, chose a vegetable over the ever-blessed God. And then the curses are pronounced on both the serpent and on the woman and on the man. And God executes just retribution for what they've done. And now as we come to Genesis 3, 20 through 24, essentially what God would have us know, what Moses is recording for us, is God saying, you will not be able to dwell in this garden because of what you've done. You will not be able to reach out and take from the tree of life. You will not have life. Now, it's important for us to note that before God does this, and it's very important to read your Bible sequentially and to understand why God does what he does in the order in which he does it, and our God has already given the gospel. He has already come, and as we saw last week, he has given the gospel in seed form in the curse that he pronounces on the serpent. He has said that a redeemer will come, that the woman will bear a male child who will crush the head of the serpent, that he would be man because he would come from woman, but he would have to be more than man in order to conquer the one that conquered man. And in Genesis 3.15, God has put all the elements of the gospel. He has given our first parents immediately upon their fall the hope of redemption. We see, I think, in verse 20 and in verse 21, in indications that Adam and Eve believed that gospel. I remember as a young Christian debating with friends, how could Adam be saved? If Adam, if it says that we're in Adam and we're fallen in Adam and Adam was our representative and to be in Adam means eternal destruction, to be in Christ means eternal life. They are the two great giants that live on the earth. Everybody is hung around the belt of one of those two. How is it possible that Adam, the first Adam, could be redeemed? But I think there's an intimation. Notice verse 20 that we're told here, the man, no, no sooner, notice verse 19, no sooner does God say to Adam, from dust you are, to dust you shall return. And by the way, I love in discussions on this chapter, because my, my goal, my chief goal is not to convince you of the historicity of this, though I believe it's historic. I love in discussions on this chapter where theologians will debate whether this is mythological or not. God says, from dust you are, to dust you will return, and the course of every one of your lives will end in you going back to the dust just like God said, and that you can argue about whether this is mythological and whether it's teaching an ethical, mythological, mythopoetic lesson or whether this is what actually happened. God says to Adam, from dust you are, to dust you shall return. In dying, you will die. Spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. Adam is going to die. And then notice what he does in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve, which in Hebrew means life, Eve, life, because she was the mother of all living. That doesn't make any sense. Verse 19 says, into the ground you will go, from dust you are to dust you will return, death. And so he turns around and names the woman, Isha, in Hebrew, the woman, Isha, he names her Eve, life. Now that doesn't make sense. 
God has just said spiritual death, physical death, eternal death on Adam and all of his posterity. And then Adam says, my wife will be called life because she is the mother of all living. I think that that is going back to the gospel promise that a redeemer who would again bring life would come from the woman. And Adam is believing that gospel. And as a consequence of he and Eve believing the gospel, Eve will say in chapter four, I've acquired a man from the Lord. She thinks that Cain is the redeemer. They have believed the gospel. God has clothed them with animal skins that point to the the clothing of the righteousness of Jesus for all who have faith in him. He is the sacrifice, the substitute, the covering. We get his righteousness and we've seen how God is already remedying the problem that Adam and Eve have brought into this world. There is grace even intermingled in everything that God says to Adam. That's a big point we want to get at the outset. There's grace intermingled even with the just retribution that God is pronouncing on fallen man. But this morning we want to see, we want to consider the exile, the last great act that God does prior to moving into the realm of redemptive history. And in verses 22 to 24, we're going to see this morning two things. First, we're going to see the rationale for the exile, the the expulsion from Eden and from that garden paradise, which was a garden temple where man uh, dwelled with God in perfect unbroken fellowship. And then secondly, we want to consider the redemptive purpose of God in the exile. First, we want to consider the rationale, and then secondly, the redemptive purpose. Well, notice verse 22. God has dealt with Adam in all these very nuanced ways, and now Moses records for us, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now, there are difficult things in the Bible. This is one of those difficult sections of Scripture. Is God saying that it would have been possible for Adam to take of the tree of life and magically to have had life? No, that's not possible. That, there's no possibility that the tree of life would have given out of itself life to fallen Adam and Eve. So what, what is God saying? Why is God saying now the man has become like one of us, and now lest he take of the tree of life and live forever. And interesting, God doesn't finish the sentence. It's as if God intends for that sentence to go on. But he stops, and he wants everything that he says in that partial sentence to sink in. He's giving a rationale for why he's about to expel and exile Adam and Eve and us out into the wilderness of the world. He's giving us a rationale for why Adam and Eve cannot remain in Eden and why they cannot eat of the tree of life. Now, in order to understand this, first we have to look at what God means by the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And again, this is Trinitarian, just like it is in Genesis 1.26 when God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And then he says, so the Lord made man in his own image, in our image, in his own image. And here, notice, the Lord is having a counsel. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is counseling within himself in order to make this rationale for why we are expelled out and away from the presence of God. And he says, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, this is dripping with sarcasm. This is dripping with sarcasm. On one hand, God is not saying because... The man and his wife have become so great 
They're like me now. Let me say this this morning. There are liberal scholars who will make you want to set your hair on fire when you read their attempts to explain what is being said here. There are people that will say God is jealous of Adam and Eve. Wow. There are people who are saying God is threatened by Adam and Eve. Wow. God is saying sarcastically that Adam and Eve had fallen into the deception that if they decided for themselves that they could be like God, if they would decide for themselves whether eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was good for them, that then they would them, themselves become like God. Satan had convinced them, God knows in the day that you eat of it, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And now the Lord is, in a sense, dripping with sarcasm, saying, look what the man and the woman have become. They've become like one of us. Have they become like one of us? And yet, the story of redemption is that man has become like a worm. The psalmist will actually say, I'm a worm. We are frail children of dust. We have become nothing. We have lost the glory of the divine image that God placed upon man's creation, and we have become base, and we have become as nothing. Yes, we've gained the knowledge of good and evil. We've talked about that. Adam and Eve gained the experiential knowledge of good and evil. They learned what the good was from the evil by choosing the evil and rejecting the good. When they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve learned what it was to be discerning, but from the vantage point of having fallen and chosen the evil, they learned what it was to be discerning by rejecting the good. And now, in one sense, they're completely unlike God. In another sense, they have become judges. They have become decision makers. You know, it's interesting to me, the rest of the scripture is God telling Adam's descendants, how can you who are evil learn to do good and judge with righteous judgment and make righteous judgments and don't judge according to sinful fallen judgment. And the whole of the rest of the scripture is God teaching man how unlike him he has become and how in the work of redemption he will renew and restore the right knowledge of good and evil. And so there is, in a sense, sarcasm. The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And then notice what he says. The rationale develops. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. I think it's important for us to understand that the tree of life is sort of like the Lord's Supper. It's a sacrament. It showed forth something beyond itself. It symbolized eternal life. The fruit of the tree that would have been born when Adam passed the test with regard to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that fruit would have been sacramental fruit, just like the bread and the wine. You say, how could that be? How can bread and wine become a symbol of the saving blessings of Jesus? The tree of life was set apart by God. It was invested with the spiritual purpose. It was just like every other tree in the garden. There wasn't anything magical about the tree of life. It didn't have the ability to give life out of itself, but it represented the life that Adam should have had had he obeyed. And here's what God is saying. And I'll summarize this as simply as I can for you. God is essentially saying, now lest man decide for himself that by his own efforts he will try to gain life and will try to get access back into my presence and by his own self-righteous attempts 
will try to gain a way back to me. I will expel him from the garden and from the tree in order to protect him. Now, you say, I'm not sure that's what is happening here. I want to read to you something that Jonathan Edwards wrote on these verses, speaking about um, the desire of man to try to self-righteously gain life. And, and that's a, it's a hamster wheel in our souls. That's what men are constantly trying to do. You may not recognize that you do that, but your conscience is hardwired to what Adam was before the fall. It is hardwired to try to work and obey in order to get life. As much as we fail, as much... And, you know, I just read this week a very interesting statement about this, and then I'll read you the Edwards thought. And, and the statement went something like this, you know, man in this fallen world would never dream of trying to do the impossible. And I'm not talking about the seemingly impossible. I'm talking about the impossible time travel. It's impossible. You will never travel time. It is metaphysically impossible. We can make all kinds of stuff up in sci-fi movies. It is metaphysically impossible for you to travel in time. I know. I love time travel movies. I do. Man would never attempt what he knows is impossible in the material world but he is constantly attempting what he knows is impossible in the spiritual world. How sad and lamentable. And God is saying he knows that that's what man will do, that he will try in his own effort, in his own fallen foolishness, in his perceived wisdom to try to get back to the tree of life, to try to work for his salvation. The whole of the Bible is about that. The whole history of Israel is about them trying to work for their salvation. Read Romans, read Galatians, read Hebrews. And if you don't believe me, look at every church that doesn't preach the grace of God in Jesus, and it will prove that this is right. And Edward says this. He says, hence, how vain and dangerous are their attempts that are attempting to get eternal life themselves. There are many that notwithstanding the flaming sword of God's justice and vindictive wrath that turns every way are endeavoring to find out ways to come at the tree of life. Many are bold to come in their own names, in their own righteousness. There is no sword for them that come in Christ's name, but a flaming sword still for them that come in their own names. This is being taught in Genesis 3. God is packing into this the rationale that man will try, he will try to gain life by his own works and effort, that he will spend his life doing that, he will be sophisticated in doing that. He will come up with very sophisticated ways to convince himself and quiet his conscience in saying, I will live, I will not die. I do not deserve justice and wrath. Listen, if you want to make people mad, you talk about hell and you talk about eternal judgment, and you talk about Jesus as the only one that takes away the flaming sword, and you will see what people believe, and you will see that this is true, and you will see that what Edward says is right, that men are trying in so many different ways to get access to the tree of life by what they do. And God, and this is the beautiful thing, even as the expulsion from Eden and the exile out of the garden into the, the far country, the barrenness of the world, even as God is going to expel Adam out back to the place from which he was made. Remember, man was made outside the garden and then placed in the garden. Now he's going to be sent back out and he's going to become part of what he should have cultivated. He's going to become part of the fallen world now. He's going to become part of the dust that he should have turned into the garden. Man 
is it's covenant reversal. God is reversing. In the exile out of Eden, he is reversing covenant blessing. He is now sending man into the wilderness of the world. And yet there's a kindness, and you have to listen very carefully. There's a great kindness from God in doing what he's doing because God is saying you cannot get back by your own efforts. And my friends, listen to me this morning, how kind it is that you in your ears can hear these words that there is no way back to the presence of God and there is only one way of salvation in Jesus and that you can never get back by what you do and that no matter how much your conscience wants to work to gain God's approval and favor, you can never do it. And it is a kindness from God to tell you that. It was a kindness from God to expel Adam and Eve out. In a sense, John Calvin actually says that Adam and Eve are being excommunicated out of the church. When God puts them out of the garden, he's, he's saying you cannot eat the Lord's Supper lest you think that you have life. It's the best way to think about it. When a church has to execute excommunication according to Jesus in Matthew 18, and that they are put out of the church, they are cut off from the sacraments, God is saying, do not deceive yourself into thinking you have life. God is protecting Adam from self-righteous intentions. And he's protecting us from self-righteous intentions. And that's the explicit rationale. Notice again that verses 22, verse 22 is an unfinished sentence. Uh, in, in, in English, it's called an anakaluthon, when somebody starts a thought, but they don't finish it. And I, I don't think God forgot to finish the sentence. I think it lingers so that you'll realize this is reality for man forever. Now, lest, lest he put and take his hand and reach out and eat of the tree of life. Now, now, lest the man who has become like one of us try to gain life, and he doesn't finish it. He wants that to linger. He wants that to go on so that we'll realize that is the course of all men. That is the sad state of all men by nature. But then secondly, and probably most importantly, there is a, there is a divine rationale. There's a redemptive purpose. There's a redemptive purpose in what God is doing. Notice verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, if, if this was all we had, I think most of us would say, what in the world is going on? Why in the world would God kick Adam and Eve out of the garden, exile them into the far, far country, make them work the ground from which they came from, realize all the burdens and all the misery and all the sin and all the guilt and all the shame of their sin? Why would life be so hard? We talked about this last week. Isn't it amazing people that reject the gospel will tell you, Life is terribly difficult and frustrated at every turn in parenting and work and everything that we do, and yet they will not come back to the source and say, this is why. And yet God has a redemptive purpose. God has a redemptive purpose. I want to just point out two things. First, I want us to consider the cherubim with the flaming sword, and then secondly, I want us to consider the allusion to the east of Eden. Notice that he tells us that the east and I think that means at the east gate of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. If you did a study in scripture, you would realize that fire symbolizes the holiness and judgment of God, that 
the burnt offering, the sacrifice went up in the fire. It was consumed in the fire of God's wrath. That the fire, God, our God is a consuming fire, the writer of Hebrews says. That, that that is the devouring justice of an infinitely holy God. That it is denoted, his holiness, his righteousness, his purity. And, and by way of association, his wrath, his righteous judgment is denoted by fire. That's why the sacrifice was consumed in the fire. And, and if we ask what a sword denotes, and we go through the scriptures, we see everywhere that a sword is, uh, is, is executing justice. The sword is, is a symbol of justice all through the scriptures. In fact, the Bible will speak of the sword of the Lord. It will, it will speak of the sword of the Lord. I want to read to you um, just a bit of a walkthrough in scripture. The Lord must employ his sword to slay the wicked. The sword of the Lord appears readied in the hand of the captain of the Lord host as Joshua contemplated his attack on Jericho. It became the central feature of Gideon's battle cry against the Midianites. In the apocalyptic visions of the revelation of John, the one whose name is the word of God, Jesus brandishes a sharp, double-edged sword that strikes the nations. This end-time sword joins his iron scepter of the messianic king as an instrument for subduing the nations. And so if you are Adam and Eve and you don't know everything God's going to do, but you see the entrance to Eden now and you're looking back on it and you see these cherubim, these great angels, don't think little cute angels at the Christian bookstore. That does you a horrible disservice if you do that. Think mighty, glorious, frightening beings that you would be afraid of brandishing a flaming sword, turning every way, and knowing the only way I can get back to life is to go through that flaming sword. Not only is it a sword, it's a flaming sword. That there is something of the devouring fire of God's wrath preventing the way that you will never get life. You will never get life unless you can go through the flaming swords. You will never get to eat of the tree of life, which symbolizes eternal life, unless you go through the flaming swords. And there's this wonderful, and let me say this morning, that was an Anakaluthan, I stopped that sentence. There's this wonderful little glimpse of hope for everyone who comes to terms with the fact that you will never get back to the tree of life and gain eternal life unless you can pass through the flaming sword of God's justice. There is one tiny prophecy nestled away in Zechariah And everyone who has come to terms with the fact that we are at a loss of getting through that sword and of gaining eternal life by our own efforts and works, latch on to this little prophecy in Zechariah 13, 7, where the Lord says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. You have to listen carefully. This is a messianic prophecy. Jehovah, the Lord, says, Awake, O sword against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Here's one place in scripture where the sword of the Lord's justice is said that it's going to fall on the shepherd. It's going to fall on the Lord's companion. And as Jesus goes into his sufferings and he goes forward and he's being betrayed and he's being handed over to the the chief priest and the soldiers and the scribes, And he turns to his disciples and he says to them, this night, 
He says, this night all of you will be made to stumble because of me, Matthew 26, 31, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And what Jesus does is he points back to Zechariah 13, 7, and he says, I am the one on whom the sword of justice is going to fall, and I am going to go through the flaming sword of God's justice, and that sword is going to fall on me in full so that you can enter back into the presence of God and you can eat again from the tree of life. And until the Lord Jesus sheds his blood and until the sword of God's wrath comes down upon him at Calvary, there is no hope of anyone getting back to the tree of life and gaining life. But Jesus says, it is written, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And I love the way Ann Cousins, the old hymn writer, captures this when she says, Jehovah bade his sword awake, O Christ, it woke against thee. Thy blood, the flaming blade, must slake. Thine heart, its sheath, must be. All for my sake, my peace to make. Now sleeps that sword for me. The sword of God's justice that guards the way back to the tree of life now sleeps because it's fallen on the Lord Jesus. His wrath has been satisfied. He stood in our place. He said, my father, I will go through. And let me say this this morning. If you have weak thoughts of Jesus, let me tell you that Jesus Christ is the only one who could say, my father, I will go through the flaming sword and I will open the way back to the tree of life. I will do what is impossible for man to do because I am God. I love the way Shai Lin, the reformed hip-hop artist, puts it. Only God can endure the wrath of God and survive. He says, I will go through. I will take the flaming sword. I will take the wrath. I will endure the punishment on the cross. And then as we come to the book of Revelation and you see that final vision in Scripture and God has opened the way back to the tree of life and in that heavenly garden paradise that comes down into the new heavens and the new earth, the apostle John tells us, I saw as it were 12 trees of life on either side of the river. The river is the Holy Spirit. Christ is the tree of life. The leaves were for the healing of the nations that now God has promised to bring Jew and Gentile, men and women from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language back into the garden paradise because Jesus has taken the sword of God's justice. It's one of the greatest explanations of the gospel. The sword that should fall on us in justice fell on Jesus. And now the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. But there's another redemptive purpose, and it's, it's related in every way, and it's the fact that when God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden, we're told... He drove them out and he put those cherubim with the flaming sword at the east of the Garden of Eden. Now, why mention that? Why say, and, and this is where learning the details of Scripture is so important. Why does God say that he put the angels with the flaming sword at the east of the Garden of Eden? What does that mean? Why, why mention the east? And, and you understand as the Bible begins to unfold that that and God begins to show man how he's going to bring him back into his presence that through all of redemptive history, the east gate becomes significant in the tabernacle. The tabernacle in the wilderness, was, which was the stepping stone in the restoration of Eden, it faced toward the east, and the east is where the sun rises. And when the priest went in in the morning for the morning sacrifice, the first thing that he would walk into in the temple was the altar. It's a picture of the cross, the altar. The sacrifice had to be made, and, and then he could go into the presence of God, and it showed that, 
There had to be sacrifice and offering, and that pointed to Jesus crucified. And, and as that priest would go in for the morning sacrifice, and he would go in, and it would still be dark outside, but the, the curtains of the temple facing to the east and the east gate, the light of the sun coming in would shine on that altar, and God would show that there were glimmers, rays of redemptive hope, because Jesus is said to be the son of righteousness in Malachi, who rises with healing in his wings, and that God would again give the light of the gospel. And then as the tribes gathered around that tabernacle in the Old Testament, and they all took their places around the different entry points, we're told that Judah, the tribe of Judah from which Jesus comes, stands at the east gate, because he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And God is intimating that there must be someone who can bring you back in through the east gate, and then when the temple's built, there's an east gate, and the east gate becomes significant as God talks about that end-time temple of heaven itself in Ezekiel. And he says that, that no one could enter in, that it's blocked, and yet there's one whose name was the Prince, the Messiah, the Christ. And that he would go in through the east gate. Ezekiel 40 to 48, he would enter in through the east gate. And once the priest went in, the waters would flow out. Jesus said, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And that water would be for the healing of the nations. Because once Christ would pass through the flaming sword of God's justice on the cross, he would enter into the temple presence. And there's, there's one more important step. If you were an Israelite and you were reading this, the only way you would know about the cherubim is that after this is written, the next place there are cherubim are woven into the veil in the temple. And so what lay between God's presence in the most holy place that no one could go into except the high priest once a year and the holy place and the outer court and Israel and the church, the only thing that lay between them and God and being reconciled to God and dwelling with God was a veil that they could not go through. And on that veil were cherubim. And if you're an Israelite and you're reading that, you should think, this is taking us back to Eden. And it's saying that, that we need the restored presence of God, but just like there were cherubim with flaming sword at the east gate, we've come through the east gate of the temple, we've gone into the most holy place, there are cherubim and it's saying you cannot enter. You cannot enter. And this is magnificent. The writer of Hebrews tells us that by the offering up of himself, Jesus has made a new and living way through the veil that is his flesh and he has brought us into the presence of God and that he is the first one to go in. That's the way the writer of Hebrews speaks about Jesus. He's the first one to go in. And the veil of his flesh is torn and the flaming sword is satisfied and everyone that comes to Jesus hears him say, I am the way. I am the only way. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way to the presence of God. I have made a new and living way. Whoever comes to me, I am the door. He will go in and he will go out. He will find pasture. I am the living way. I am the forerunner. I have gone before. I have opened the way. And this is magnificent. When Jesus steps out of the tomb in the resurrection, there are angels at the tomb, meeting his disciples. But there's no sword. There's no sword. 
There's no wrath. There's no justice. There's no fear of punishment. All there is is the angels saying, he is not here, he's risen. As he said, he's gone before you. And then Jesus appears and he says, I go to my father and to your father. I enter into the true heavenly place of glory and I've made a new and living way for you. And the sword of God's wrath has been silenced. It sleeps for all those in Jesus. Now, what are we to make of this? First thing I'd say, if you have not come to terms with the fact that by nature, you are trying to gain life by what you do, you need to come to terms with that today. Every Hollywood celeb that I, I'm convinced they have a, a book that they pass around with different charities that have not been taking, taken. And Matt Damon says, oh, fracking, I'll take that. that that's, that's good. And, and once fracking's taken, it's gotta be another one. Um, Angelina Jolie's done all the adoption. So there's a book with things you can do to help try get your way back to the tree of life. And if, if you just clean yourself up enough and, and try to be charitable enough, you can quiet that guilty conscience and that'll never work. The only thing that'll quiet the guilty conscience is the blood of Jesus that flowed out of the Savior when the sword of God's justice fell on him at the cross. The only thing that will give you access to the tree of life is the blood of Jesus that flowed out of the Savior when the fiery sword of God's justice fell on him at the cross. The only thing that will give you access to the tree of life, the only thing that will give you access back into the presence of God is the blood of Jesus shed under the sword of God's justice at the cross. The only thing that will give you access is that Jesus went up in the fire of God's wrath and was devoured in the fire. Jesus went up in the flames of God's wrath, went up in the flames. And that if you're in Christ, you have access. Let me say that this morning. If you are in Jesus, you have this unbelievable access to the presence of God anytime you want because Jesus has made that new and living way for you. The writer of Hebrews will actually say, let us come boldly. What in the Old Testament the priest was fearful to do, going into the most holy place, you get to go boldly. Yes, reverently, but boldly because Jesus has opened that new and living way, you know, I think God gives us this because we need our minds to be trained and equipped by symbolism and by story and by imagery. But at the end of the day, I think God gives us this because you and I and every Christian on the face of the earth live well below the level of privilege they have in Jesus. And so getting the significance of the second Adam going through the flaming sword to make way into the presence of God, and now you are able to rush in there to God and to know him and to fellowship with him, is the greatest of all the privileges you have. It's the greatest, it's the biggest. There's nothing you can enjoy doing that will ever satisfy you more than that. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church, let's pray. Father, we pray that you would please grant us hearts that understand these things and eyes and ears that see and that hear. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make us to appreciate in a new and a fresh way all that you have done for us and all that has been accomplished for us, that you have gone through, that you have gone through the flaming sword of justice, that your body was broken, that your blood was shed, that your soul was made an offering for sin. 
Father in heaven, please soften every heart in this place to receive and believe and rest upon these things. We pray that you would feed us now as we eat the fruit of the Lord Jesus going through those flaming swords in the supper. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.